Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste possibly collide. I'll explain why I said possibly in a minute. My name is William Bibiani. <laughs> I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And I don't need a nickname. I'm strong enough without one. Wow, really throwing that shade over in this yeah, direction. Okay. You bet. Yeah, I got... Ouch. Pa- palm fronds arranged in just such a way. When I was a kid, I really wanted a nickname so bad. I didn't envision bibs, but, you know, whatever. Mm. It's what I got. You don't get to make your nicknames. No. no Except you. You picked Rockmeister McCool, and somehow it's stuck. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that one that one got stuck. Anyway, sure. this week, Uncritically Acclaimed, you're reviewing the new releases, Wolfwalkers, Run, Small Axe, colon, Mangrove, Collective, The Last of Vermeer, and on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, because our patrons demanded it. We're going to be reviewing the classic 1960s Western horror hybrid Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. It was actually Frankenstein's granddaughter, but we'll get to that. Uh, um, we'll, we'll talk in great deal, in great uh, detail about yeah, that particular film. The, uh, the, the mandate for that poll was mm. Westerns on Tubi. Yeah. We wanted to explore Tubi because Tubi is... Uh, if the analog we've made is if Tubi was a video store, there'd be like the really awesome run down independently run one just down the street from the blockbuster. Like like in, in the 80s and, and the majority of the 90s, there was a really, really good chance you had like one like big video store where you grew up that had all like the mainstream stuff and oh, had yeah, like a dozen yeah. copies of Batman, which was a lot at the time. And then there was also the really tiny store, which had all the weird stuff, like yeah. the runoff. Well, and that, that was, was the good stuff. And that wasn't a mistake. Uh, no, they block, were filling a niche. No, block, but no, it, it worked the no? other way around. Oh. That store came first, and it was already there, and it was fulfilling this, the community's video rental needs. Oh, I see. But Blockbuster was one of those asshole companies like Borders and Starbucks mm-hmm. that deliberately sought out those little independent businesses and deliberately opened locations nearby to in them. order to drive them out of business, to, yeah. to siphon the business off of them. If you ever saw the movie You've Got Mail, it's... It's like that, except the owner of the asshole corporation didn't fall in love with the mm. uh, proprietor of the little small business, wasn't and somehow that made everything okay? Well, wasn't it clever of them to cast Tom Hanks as the asshole mm-hmm. Borders owner? It's kind of a despicable film in some ways. It is, it, it yeah. is, yeah. It's really like on the side of big business in a lot <laughs> of ways. There's so many charming performances in it that you can almost like miss that it's kind of gross. Um, the reason I said at the beginning of this podcast, we'll get to the reviews in just a second, um, that I don't know... Uh, uh, if uh, we collided Mm. uh, is because last Saturday my laptop died and it died really bad uh, that thing died hard. That thing died quite. You mm. saw that movie Die Hard? Worse. Uh, <laughs> but it was. It was. It, it was. It. It didn't just die hard. It a good day to die hearted. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, quite bad. Mm. Uh, so obviously, I was very upset. Uh, because, uh, well, one, we had like all of our stuff on there and I've backed up a lot of it, but we have such a heavy production schedule. We do so many podcasts Mm. for this feed and our Patreon, which has a lot of exclusive podcasts, uh, that there were some episodes that we'd pre-recorded and I don't, didn't know if I was going to be able to rescue them. Mm. Uh, so I tweeted that this sucks and I'm frustrated on top of it all. I, it's 2020. I couldn't afford to get a new laptop. Like I'm, I'm, we're barely scraping by. Uh, and people started to ask, hey, is there some way we could help? And I immediately thought to myself, I couldn't possibly. Mm. 
And then Whitney gave them my Venmo address. <laughs> because I knew you couldn't possibly. I, and I'm really, listen, I, I'm really grateful. And I thought maybe, maybe hmm. a few nice people would donate a little money and I'd be able to put like a down payment on something and I'd figure something out. I I want to extend my deepest heartfelt gratitude to everybody who saw that and pitched in because you were able to not only uh, you, not only that it was there enough money to recover my hard drive, but there's enough money to buy a new laptop and get like and make it like and get a sturdy one that'll last a long time. So uh, so the show is saved thanks to those people. Thank you for saving a show. Um, yeah. That will explain a lot of weird sound discrepancies. There may, listen, I actually so, have a, we're recording on an on an old laptop. Whitney has let me borrow, mm-hmm. so it's an older program. Might sound um, a little different. It might sound and a little uh, different. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to, depending on when my laptop gets here, my new one, uh, and how long it takes to set it up and how long it takes to get my hard drive recovered, I might not have access to all the music or sound effects that we use on the regular. So, again, this episode might sound a little different, but we were able to record mm-hmm. and we wanted to put something out and I wanted to take some time up front. Uh, a lot of people help keep the show going every single month on the patron and we're incredibly grateful to you but for those who went above and beyond and those mm. who could afford to and I, I demanded this please don't give anything unless you can genuinely afford it and like comfortably so uh, I I felt like George Bailey at the end of It's a Wonderful Life when everyone like mm. chipped in like because I really did feel like that kind of despair where it was just like this is it like this is might be the end you know like, <laughs> it, like I mean I know we'd figure something out Okay, but well, like I didn't know do. how we're, it was going to be resourceful. We can I, figure something out. I honestly out. didn't know how it was going to mm. make it work, and uh, everyone just kind of came together, and it felt mm. like a holiday miracle. And honestly, I had real trouble with it because, like a lot of people, I have what can only really be described as imposter syndrome. So, like, if anyone says I'm doing anything okay, my first thought is to reject it and be like, "No, no, you're the real stars." Um, because that's true, but, uh, the idea that people could actually like care enough to help out, um, I just, I, my, I had trouble processing just how kind everyone was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still can barely believe it. So I'm just incredibly grateful. And my kind of my faith in humanity has been restored after such an awful year we've all had. So I just want to say thank you. A few people have like sort of, sort of come by and they, they caught wind a little late and said, can we help out? And I don't want any more money because, you know, the laptop is, we got enough to pay for it. Um, we'll be fine beyond that. I just couldn't afford a new laptop. Just, so just keep uh, listening. We'll keep listening. And if you have the means to help someone out who's in need and you really want to, please, you know, donate to a charity or there's a lot of you know, GoFundMes and other people mm-hmm. who've just had a, a, worse than I have uh, a lot of dire straits. Uh, this year yeah. um, so and, and including you know many people who are probably uh, if you listen to the show are also in the bubble um, I highly encourage everybody uh, if you can to help out uh, Schmodown competitor Kevin Smets uh, who is not only and and I, I love this guy so much he's such a nice human being uh, he he was recently diagnosed with colon cancer mm. um, and he has been kind of documenting what he's going through and trying to help 
people to know to get screened so that they don't have to go through what he's going through right now. And he's so fucking heroic. Yeah. yeah. So if you can contribute to him, please do. But there's a lot of other people out there who could really, really use mm-hmm. your help right now uh, because this year sucks and we're all tapped out. So, again, again, I don't want to spend any more time on it. Thank you, everybody, from the bottom of my heart. I am going to redouble my efforts once this new laptop arrives, we're going to put out so many podcasts, it'll make your head spin. We will just never stop podcasting. I mean, we weren't going to anyway. <laughs> you're going to, <laughs> you're going to start, you're going to start hearing us uh, eating on mic just because there's no other time to do it. What would we, what would we do if the podcast like died like Betamax? Like what would we well, like do? Like the format? Yeah. What would we, we do? We would adapt, sir. Okay, Betamax right. died, but you could still watch videos, right? Yeah. Well, actually, and with and with and because my laptop was like going mm. on ten years old, so it wasn't mm. great. With a newer laptop, I mean, we might be able to do more video content and stuff as well, yeah, which we would like to do. I was get, I was going to mention if if yeah. you hear a, a sudden downtick and then extreme uptick in sound quality. Oh yeah, that would be why. There's a decent decent mm. chance. So again, I don't know what this sounds like right now because we're just trying this out on an older program. Hopefully, it sounds good. Uh, if it sounds like crap, we'll re-record this episode. Like, I'm not going to, like, this sounds like, you know, like a garbled 1930s recording of, like, some obscure show that's been, like, dubbed and redubbed onto various audio cassettes. Roma Wine presents the Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. yeah, like, that. if it sounds that bad, we won't release it, but... Um, or just add a record scratch, and that'll be, like, this weird, distant, faraway, vast of night kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. that'd be really great. Anyway, we want to move on to movie reviews, but, again, thank you, everybody, from the bottom of my heart. This show would not exist without you, and, boy, is that more true than ever right now. And, and I would have bought you a laptop, but I, I don't have that kind of cash <laughs> no, either, so, yeah. No one, no um, one has enough money to just get the laptop, mm-hmm. so the fact that so many people pitched in mm-hmm. a little bit here, a little bit there, just it all added up. Yeah, I'm just yeah. amazed at how many people cared so, enough. Some people, even before... Uh, the Venmo was up. We're Venmoing me money, saying, "Yeah, Let's pass that on to William." I, it's I, like that, that, so, that blew yeah. my mind. That blew my mind. So mm. I just I can't and, believe it. And I and to assure you, I did pass it on to William. I'm, I, I'm no, not, yeah, I'm, I'm not a jerk. He did. He did. And and, and <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't forget. And I, I I actually am surprised I'm not crying right now because I cried like three times this Aww. weekend over that. So thank you, everybody. All right, let's move on and let's review. Some new movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to pick up. They're starting to get some more interesting stuff towards the end of the year because normally this would be Oscar season. And we would get, a, in addition to a lot of the sort of the bigger movies that tend to come out around the Christmas season, Thanksgiving weekend used to be a big weekend for movies because everyone would be out shopping mm-hmm. and they would also go to the theater. And then, of course, Christmas is also a big holiday blockbuster time. And, and we're getting a few uh, big uh, award bait kind of movies on well, the streaming services. I was, I was getting to that. Like, we're getting a couple big movies as well. Like, Disney's putting out Black Beauty next I, week. I'm looking forward to watching that. I can't wait to talk about Hillbilly Elegy. That's coming out next week. That'll yeah. be interesting. I haven't seen that yet, uh, but and the, and we just announced that Wonder Woman's going to be coming to HBO Max uh, at the end of December, so that'll be a big one. Yeah, that one's but, on Christmas Day, if I recall. But yeah, but we're starting to get like some of the movies that would normally be vying for and competing in a very crowded marketplace. Uh, for our sort of art house attentions in the mm-hmm. hopes of Oscar glory, and they're still vying for that. There will be an Academy Awards. I think they've extended uh, the the deadline for eligibility yeah. a few months. Like a, a few of the films that come out early in 2021 will still be eligible yeah. for. I forget the, the exact, previous year's Oscars. I forget the exact cutoff, mm-hmm. but th- there will be an Oscars. These movies do still want to get noticed. And what I think is interesting is that normally it would be hard for a lot of people to see these movies because. They're only playing a couple of theaters for Oscar eligibility, and then they might expand at the beginning of next year. 
or there's so many of them that some of them, even really good ones, just get overlooked. Here, I feel like a lot of them aren't getting noticed because they're all on different streaming services and no one has all of them. Or mm-hmm. if you do, you're probably in like a very small subsection of the viewership. Uh, so we do want to highlight some stuff that might otherwise have gone unnoticed. And I want to start with a movie that Whitney insisted that I watch. I was going to, but Whitney was like, whatever you do, make sure you watch this. Oops, I'm dropping things. Yeah. And uh, boy, am I glad you did, hmm. because it is Wolfwalkers, and this is one of the best movies of the year. Uh, they, they made a movie for you, William. Isn't that nice? <laughs> they made a movie for uh, me, uh, and they made uh, a movie for uh, uh, my uh, wife, Michelle, a sweet, a sweet film about uh, Irish werewolves. This seemed like right up your alley. Very, very much so. Uh, yeah, this is uh, the latest film from Tom Moore, uh, best known for uh, Song of the Sea and The Secret mm-hmm. of Kells. Um, uh, he co-directs here with, I want to get the name, Ross mm-hmm. Stewart. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, this is another delightful Irish folk tale. It takes place in Kilkenny in the mid-15th century. And a small, I guess just a, a regular-sized Irish village is mm-hmm. beset occasionally by wolves. Although, more accurately, the local Judge Claude Frollo from Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, the, the evil uh, town judgey yeah, minister guy. Uh, has more, more than that, has a vendetta against the wolves. Mm-hmm. And they have been vilifying wolves in this village for a really, really long time. Uh, when, in fact, they're just sort of animals. Yeah, which is uh, true for just wolves. Mm. Somewhere down the line, because wolves, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll sometimes mm-hmm. prey on livestock. But at some point, people who tell stories decided that wolves were the greatest monster yeah. on Earth. And, you've, and this, so this goes down to like the primal Little Red Riding Hood right, kind right. of stuff. So, uh, uh, but, in, uh, but they're not. They're just animals. Yeah. And in fact, the, the number of wolf attacks on humans in recorded history, I think it's like one. And that guy was like nearly frozen to death. Like they don't <laughs> attack humans. They just don't. Are you, telling, are you telling me the movie The Grey lied to me? The movie The Grey lied to you so fucking oh, hard. Uh, so, uh, the, the main character is a young girl named Robin Goodfellow. Where have I heard that name before? Uh, that's, that's Puck from Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Uh, she is the daughter of the town's, uh, most preeminent wolf hunter. Yeah. And she, uh, wanders out into the woods one evening and befriends a wolf. Well, it's not, she has, it's not that simple because mm-hmm. her, her father is the person who is responsible for hunting the wolves. And if we don't get rid of these wolves which are wreaking havoc uh, on the people who are trying to cut down all the trees in the forest, Mm. Uh, they can't get lumber, and they can't uh, clear fields for farming, and they can't really sustain the village. So they actually do have a lot invested in this. So he's got a really, really important job, and she wants to join him on this job. She uh, she packs a crossbow, and she's a total badass, and she wants to go off. She's got a song she sings about killing wolves, and, uh, but uh, it's 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 actually much more sweet and endearing than this the strange artificial, uh, like the fakey girl power stuff you might see in a, a Disney film. No, it's very it's very uh, intimate. Like her relationship yeah. with her father. Her, her mother is out of the picture. They don't really address it, but mm-hmm. the implication is she died. And uh, 
the, the her relationship with her father is very tender and very sweet, and she respects him, and she wishes she could go into his line of work, but she's a little kid, and she has to stay home. Mm-hmm. And so when her father goes out to hunt wolves, she, being mischievous and precocious, decides to chase after him, and in the process, she gets caught in one of her father's wolf snares, and a wolf comes up to her, and she thinks it's trying to attack her, but it's actually trying to set her free, and she keeps trying to punch and kick the wolf until the wolf finally bites her so that she'll move so she can let mm. Robin free. And uh, that's when she finds out that she's been bitten by a wolfwalker. And a wolfwalker is a kind of a werewolf. Uh, the idea is they are human, and then every time they fall asleep, they turn into a wolf. Or rather, they sort of astral project a wolf because their body yeah, is still there and asleep. Yeah, a wolf appears out of the ether, and that is also them. Yes, and they don't turn into a human just whenever they wake up. They are asleep until the wolf returns to the body. Mm. Uh, Which means yeah. you're awake all the time, and that seems just utterly exhausting. That sounds like, it, I mean, it, the movie pretty much portrays it as the real tragedy as people demonize wolves. Mm. Uh, but that does seem to be one element of it that would be a bit of a curse. Like, yeah. you know, you, I, I guess you don't need it. Like, I guess if we didn't need sleep in order to function, because that's, you know, you're awake long enough, your brain starts shutting down. It just can't handle it. Mm. It needs to shut down to like low power mode. And, like, update the software, basically, every night. I guess if you didn't need to do that, it wouldn't really be important, so who cares? But mm. I can't wrap my head around not needing sleep. Spoiler alert, I love sleep. <laughs> I love sleep so much. I used to hate naps when I was a kid. Now mm. I'm like, do I get to nap now? Well, I that, love it so. It comes back in college. You start taking yeah. naps again. It's like, oh, yeah, this is, this is a good idea. Yeah. Anyway, um... We get to meet uh, the Wolf Walker girl in human form, and I, I think her name was Mabe? Uh, Maeve. Maeve. Yeah. Uh, I think it's spelled differently, but they pronounce yeah. it Maeve. Maeve. And she is, when in human form, uh, kind of a wild child anyway. She's yeah. sort of a wolf, kind of raised uh, by wolves kind of child who yeah. leaps about the woods and wants to show uh, Robin Goodfellow around mm-hmm. and explain to her that wolves are kind of okay. And uh, her drama is that... Uh, her mother is in a, essentially a coma. Yeah. She is a, she, she's a wolf walker as well. And she's a wolf somewhere and they don't know where the wolf is. So mm. she's essentially just in the wolf Glen with her comatose yeah. mother. And she can't leave mm. because her mom is there, even mm. though so she, to, even though she should, because mm. the humans are encroaching on her territory and they're going to kill her. So Robin and her new friend Maeve, uh, they bond, they uh, come to appreciate their, shared uh, um, sort of interests and that doesn't sound that isn't nearly as cloying or cliche as it would be in a Disney movie yeah it feels really genuine uh, but the problem is that the tensions between humans and wolves are escalating mm-hmm. the overall basic story of wolf walkers is not the most novel thing you've ever heard mm. I fully freely admit that well, it I'll, is however perfectly mm, done <laughs> I'll say this uh I'm reminded of a lot of like Disney and Pixar films. I was thinking of Brave a lot, just because sure. they're both set in Ireland. Uh, mm. 
It's got an but avatarish yeah. quality, you know, walk a mile mm-hmm. in my shoes and, you know, that kind of thing. In terms of its its pacing and its character and especially its style, mm-hmm. I feel like it finally makes me realize a little bit why Disney keeps trying this kind of story. They're trying to do something like this yeah. and never quite reaching it because I think Disney is is overproduced. They're they're just there's too much detail. Yeah. It's like, oh, what gorgeous animation. Yeah, but I'm distracted. It's, a little so, it's bit. so polished and they've got yeah, it down it, it to such a science. It almost doesn't feel human. Yeah. Uh, and this one does feel human. In fact, uh, Tom Moore's style, uh, if you've seen his other movies, mm-hmm. is this very kind of broad flat style sometimes it, it the background is just sort of a flat uh upward painting of a even, background even if it's like got yeah. a lot of depth so you can see like the entire town from the mm. overhead and the background of two people standing in front of it exactly so and it's it, the, the perspective how, really changes it's and amazing how effective and how easy yeah. it is to wrap your head on that and then uh, meanwhile the the characters are all uh very uh like a lot of swooping shapes and circles mm-hmm. make up their features incredibly expressive and, in, and expressionistic and what i really liked in this one is you could still see some of the pencil test in the final product. Mm-hmm. They left in like some of the, well, sh- the the shapes that made up the characters, making them a little bit more abstract. Well, and the, in so doing, yeah. brought out more of the film's fable-like quality. Well, one of the things one of the things I love about mm-hmm. it is the way, and this is like one of the most beautiful animated movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to fit. That's that's the end of that sentence. Mm. I love the way this movie looks. I remember I brought up Avatar for a reason, not because they have that many similarities. There's some surface similarities, but because when Avatar came out, I remember reading articles about how people were getting like genuinely depressed, not just kind of bummed out, but like genuinely mm. depressed that they couldn't live in a world like Avatar, that they mm-hmm. had to live in this crap world we've got. Uh. To which I say, go to New Zealand, except for the glowy bits. That's where they all the te- that's where all the plates came from. Just go, it's here. <laughs> but regardless, people got really, really sad because they can't live in that world. And I couldn't quite wrap my head around that because I didn't really have that. Mm. I had that in this. I want to live in this forest. I want to go here. It's so incredibly beautiful mm. and intricate and odd. And one of the things I love about this is the way that. A lot of uh, uh, films nowadays are made, a lot of them are made by a computer and they use, they basically, they create the environment and then they put people in it and it's almost like working in stop motion animation. Mm. You've got this solid thing in which you can manipulate other solid things. Uh, this film doesn't operate under all of those limitations. And so you'll be watching a scene and the scene, like the scenery starts getting less defined as people become upset Mm. or you'll notice that it's not as like colored in or that it's fuzzier and it's all incredibly detailed and every single, I, I, to, to do, to do this movie justice, I think we'd have to break it down shot by shot. That's how good this movie is (laughs) because every single shot feels exquisitely planned, not just to look amazing and they all do, Mm. but to convey the emotion and to tell the story as effectively as possible. It is riveting to watch this. Absolutely stuck in your seat, riveting how Mm. good this movie is. And on top of it all, it is touching, it is suspenseful, Mm. 
even even when though you have a general sense of where the story is probably going because you know this isn't probably going to end with everyone dead you know this is like this is a family tale mm-hmm. um it's a dark family tale and bad things happen but it's a family tale uh but uh it's still that that's kind of the key to telling that kind of family story is you have to buy into the story and believe in the obstacles in the hero's paths Mm. so much that you can't see how they're getting out of it. And when you're telling a story that involves uh, hatred, propaganda, uh, dogma, uh, a lot of the subplot of it has Mm. to do with uh, how uh, the people of the town expect Robin to basically live her life as a scullery maid. That's all you can do. You're a girl. And... That's not like the overall plot of it, but it's this overall it's part of the tapestry of oppression that all of these characters live in. And over the course of the film, people keep saying things like this is for your own good, as though acclimating to an oppressive system Mm. to save yourself just to survive is in and of itself a good. And by the end of the film, you realize that only rebelling against that system Mm. is truly good. And Uh, that makes it not just a good mm. fable, but actually like a great movie that's really about stuff too. Uh, that said, I, uh, I wish the protagonist were stronger, Really, uh, by, uh, not by the, the third act. Uh, she, she went out into the woods. She discovered all of these new okay. truths. And when she came back, she seemed incapable and not because she was, uh, being oppressed or because she was shy or any kind of organic reason. She just for plot contrived reasons wasn't able to communicate anything important to the adult characters and for the mm. f- for the final climax she was essentially just pushed off to the side where she could shout no a lot and that really kind of angered me a little bit because I, I, it, mm, it was doing so well up until that point that it kind of had to sideline the heroine mm-hmm. in order to have more action. And I didn't like that part. I, I can appreciate where you come from mm. here. I actually disagree with that, mm. but I can appreciate that perspective. Uh, mm. For me, I actually thought that was effective because, you know, when she's not out in the woods being a magical wolf, she's mm. again, living in an incredibly oppressive mm. society as indeed most societies have mm. been, at least in the past. And many of them still are. Um, and all of them have places to improve. Uh, but the fact that she can't just say to the people in power, here's what's going on, mm. is, I think, something that a lot of children are going to be able to understand. It's difficult to make adults mm. take you seriously. Mm. Uh, it's difficult to make people who oppress you take you seriously. In this case, in addition to just being mm. a child, she's also a girl in a patriarchal mm. society. Just so, she, she had so much more. She had more wherewithal at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. than she did at the end. Well, she has. She, here's the thing, though. And I think one of the things that's that's overpowering her now mm. is that she is being placed in the position that her father is. Her father is voiced by Sean Bean. Uh, her father is, again, he's the hunter mm. of the, the town, the village, whatever. Um, mm. But we see over time that he feels constantly threatened Mm. because if he doesn't catch all these wolves, they don't have a life anymore. Mm. If he can't protect and care for his daughter, she's going to have to do things that he doesn't want her to have to do in order to survive in a world that isn't made for her. So he has made a lot of personal and indeed psychological and social sacrifices Mm -hmm. that he knows are wrong just to keep her safe. And in the second half or in the last act of this movie, 
our protagonist, Robin, she is put in a position all of a sudden to also make bad, difficult choices mm-hmm. in order to what she thinks of as do something for someone's own good. Mm. And I think that's what makes it interesting is that she's fallen to the same trap as her father, but unlike her father, she's able to break out of it. And I yeah. think that by putting her in that position where she understands just how heavy that kind of burden is, even just for one day living under mm. that, you know, tarp or whatever you want to call it, I think that's effective to me, but mm. I can also appreciate that it did feel like we're just kind of keeping the story from moving along, but yeah. I kind of think it's stronger for having her understand just what her dad was going through. Okay. Art, are you finished? I'm sorry. I knew you'd like this one. I, I love <laughs> and this I know you'd go on about it too. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't I'm apologize. Sorry. You're a critic. Well, the, are you finished? makes me feel a bit, a bit, uh, <laughs> a, a, a bit apologetic. I'm sorry. You want to, you want to have the last word? No, not at all. Okay. I, I think you've said it all. Okay. All right. I love I, this movie. I, There's a decent I, chance it'll be my number one film yeah. of the year. Number one, really? There's a decent yeah. chance. All right. I've, uh, seen, I've seen other great films. I haven't, right. I'm, not, I'm not making the list. But if there's – let me put this. I've, I've, I say variations on this a lot when mm. I see good movies or when I see bad movies. Uh, if I see ten better movies than this before <laughs> the end of the year uh. – I will be shocked and very pleasantly yeah. surprised. I don't think it's likely to happen. This is almost guaranteed to end up on my best films of the year list, and I wouldn't be shocked if it was at least wasn't at least hovering near the number one right. spot. I liked it too. Okay, I like it. All right, uh, tell me about. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry I didn't have time for this one, but it's it's been a weird weekend as as I mentioned. Uh-huh. Uh, tell me about Small Axe Mangrove. Uh, well, the title is just Mangrove, um, but S- Steve McQueen. The director of 12 Years a Slave and Hunger and Shame. And not the star of Bullet and The Great Escape. No. no. I always think that's funny. <laughs> it's no, just it's, like he's, Steve McQueen was such a, like, an know, iconic name for like this tough guy actor, and now mm-hmm. he's like one of the great filmmakers right mm-hmm. now, and it's a different guy. I think it's funny. Yeah. Um, anyway. uh, he also did Widows, which was kind of an interesting film. Yeah, I um, wasn't as hot on that film as everyone else was, but it, there's mm-hmm. amazing stuff in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he has signed a deal with uh, Amazon Prime to do uh, what they're selling as a TV miniseries or an anthology series when really it's just five movies. Mm. Are they connected in some way, like thematically? Just thematically. They're about uh, racial relations in England uh, over the course of, I think, Steve McQueen's own lifetime. Let's see. Let me look up when Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen was born in 69. So this takes place a little bit before 1969, Mangrove. Um. Mangrove uh, tells the the true story of the Mangrove Nine, uh, which in this little uh, British town in the 1960s was a really famous trial. And it was about a a group of people from uh, a predominantly Trinidadian uh, area of this um, British town who were constantly being harassed by the police for racist reasons. Right. And uh, the cops were coming in and raiding the Mangrove Diner uh, at, at every, every available opportunity. Uh, of course, they, uh, the owner, the proprietor of the, the diner was constantly making complaints. Nobody was ever hearing it because the system was really, really effed up. Uh, the citizens decided to, ha- to uh, have a protest. They marched through the streets. 
there was some scuffling with the racist cops, and many people were arrested, and they were put on trial mm. for starting a riot. Uh, this is a very British riot. The town was not burned to the ground. Okay. And, and nobody died, but these people were unjustly arrested and yeah. put on trial for, for trying to start a riot. And the, second, the first half of this film just establishes that community and how how closely connected they all are. And at the same time, this flashpoint of racial tension that was going on in England at the time and how much uh, rage and organization was going on and how uh, they were really trying to push justice forward. And this trial became sort of the crux of all of the revolutionary thinking saying, this is our chance to stand up to the corrupt system. Mm. We can't just sort of play in the system. We can't get ourselves off and make sure the cops go away without ever getting punished for what they did. They said, we're going to represent ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're going to read up on the law. We're going to figure out how to question these people and get the answers we need. And finally just present to the racist court that they are indeed being racist. Mm. And it's, it details their entire uh, process. That sounds great. It's really, really great. It's Steve McQueen's most humane movie. He You'll, can be a little cold sometimes. Yeah, yeah, especially when you look at his earlier films. I'm not sure if you ever saw Hunger. I didn't see uh, Hunger, no. Yeah, um, or, or even Shave, or even 12 Year, Shame, or even 12 Years a Slave. Those are very, he was a photographer first, so those are very photographic movies. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, really exquisitely filmed still shots where we're just sort of mm-hmm. taking in the, the crinkles and the details. There, there's, I find there's a bit of a Kubrickian quality to him, yeah, where he yeah. feels like he's like a little bit on the outside looking in. But, that uh, doesn't mean there's not humanity to it, but it feels like the humanity is coming more from the characters than it is from the filmmaking. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Kubrick, like, but Kubrick, if you remember his early stuff, started out really kind of earthy and exciting. He moved mm-hmm. moved his camera a lot more. He was also a photographer at mm-hmm. first, and he was really more interested in a lot of uh, down-to-earth humanity and texture, which is odd when he became a filmmaker. He drifted away from that until everything mm-hmm. was really uh, aesthetic and, yeah. and, as some people have said, very cold. Yeah, compare, Steve, compare Eyes Wide Shut yeah. to, like, The Killing. Yeah. and the, the, uh, Night and Day films. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Steve McQueen seems to be following the opposite arc. He started out very stagey and fo- photographic and is now creeping inexorably toward... Uh, a, a kind of vibrant, fiery humanity mm. that I'm really that I really really appreciate. I think uh, this is his best movie. Okay. Uh, Letitia Wright is in it, and she ah. needs to get an Academy Award for this. Wow, because she Holy is shit. so friggin' good. It, it is. That's this is where I'm asking though, because mm. I I realize that the line between. Uh, film and television is often blurred. In this mm. age of streaming, some people are just like, is Netflix TV? Is that a TV movie or no? Mm. Is this being touted as a series? Would she be eligible for an Emmy? Or is this actually getting like an Oscars push? Do you have any the, idea? We, we've made this argument before. The, the only difference between uh, TV and film now, mm. uh, that theaters are kind of out of the picture for the time being and may remain out. And... Because people are consuming TV and movies in the same way, through the same services on the same screen. Mm-hmm. And whatever the, whatever um, sort of line of uh, uh, sort of what, what, like legitimacy mm-hmm. might have come from. And I use air quotes. You mm-hmm. can't see. I just realized you can't see me put do air quotes. <laughs> but it, like legitimacy in air quotes you get mm-hmm. from opening in the theater as opposed to streaming. That's dead now. Mm-hmm. That's not a thing. Yeah. So. Uh, so the only difference between a film and a TV miniseries of films is marketing language 
and if you like aesthetics. Yeah. Uh, I would say uh, we've been raised with cinema. We kind of have an instinct as to what it looks like, yeah. what a film looks like as opposed to a TV miniseries. I would say this is a film. Okay. It's a two-hour long episode of TV, I guess. Yeah. But it, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has unique characters. Mm-hmm. And the next episode in this Small Axe series is going to be a new cast and a new uh, right. a new story entirely. And there are, th- and, and if we, again, if anyone's curious, there are thematically connected mm. series of films. Yeah, uh, that have n- they're only connected by filmmaker mm. and unique no, ideas. Uh, Christoph Kieslowski's uh, Three Colors trilogy, for mm. example, red, they, uh, uh, red, white, and blue. But blue, it, blue, white, and red. Blue, oh, white, and red. That's how it goes in uh, France. Yeah, yeah there's uh, Ingmar Bergman's Silence of God trilogy, mm-hmm. which is uh, no common characters, but they're about mm-hmm. the silence of God. Uh, that's uh, uh, John that's, Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy. Which was that was a re- retroactively applied. Yeah, it wasn't like it was dry. He wasn't I, yeah trying to explore a well, theme that, that just was coincidence. You were I interrupted you from giving Ingmar Bergman. What are the films in that? Oh, film? that's a Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence. Mm-hmm. Uh, Winter Light is often considered one of his best movies. Uh, Sean, uh, Edgar Wright has his Cornetto trilogy, which and is that actually, was deliberate. That yeah. one is deliberate, and it's all uh, a variety of films about uh, basically the evolution and maturity mm-hmm. of man, but through. The perspective of, of people who were raised on genre cinema, basically, yeah. Mm. So, so Shaun of the Dead is about uh, growing up in your twenties mm. over the course of a zombie apocalypse. Uh, Hot Fuzz uh, is about sort of uh, law enforcement, but also male friendship through the lens mm. of a buddy cop story. Mm. And uh, the World's End is very much about um, Co- coping with. Uh, arrested adolescence mm-hmm. via science fiction fantasy conceit, and later in your life where it's no mm-hmm. longer like oh he's in his twenties. Yeah, it's not, when it's not when it's it. not cute anymore. Yeah. That's the reason why, that one's my favorite of the three. Actually, just I think, it's, I the think most, it's the most thematically rich. I think it's kind of puts a button on the series. I think it's the most impactful, but mm-hmm. I think the other two mm-hmm. are maybe a little bit more sharp. So, drawn. Um, but yeah, my point is that there's precedent mm-hmm. for that. Yeah, as so, movies, not TV. Yeah, so yeah. small acts is is. Mangrove, rather, mm-hmm. is is really, really terrific. Okay. Uh, Steve McQueen, really, it's... I, I've made this, uh, this sort of qualified statement before. You can tell when somebody's a uh, filmmaker is really familiar with the place they're filming. Yeah. Uh, we talk about uh, Ben Affleck's The Town. Uh, yeah, when, he's, when Ben Affleck films Boston, like, it's... Perfect. You know, yeah. like, you know, he lives there and, you know, like he knows where the alleyways are. And he's like yeah. really concerned with the geography of the place because he was raised there. Everything feels really. And, yeah. I, and I feel like uh, like Steve McQueen is really capturing the essence of this place and all of the people mm. that interact in varying different kinds of ways. Letitia Wright is in it. The main character, uh, the the owner of the mangrove is played by uh, Sean Parks. He plays Frank mm-hmm. Critchlow. Uh, and. Yeah, he he's really sort of like the beating heart of the whole thing. Uh, Letitia Wright, however, is the one who gets like the big impassioned speeches and mm. the one who like reminds everybody, no, this this is actually what justice is all about. Um, I'm watching this and I'm thinking of the trial of the Chicago Seven and thinking, oh God, oh wait, it makes it look so bad in comparison. I've heard a lot of people uh, say that they're of they're of a piece that yeah. this is the good one. This is the better of the two. I yeah. mean, trial of the Chicago Seven does have that like. That fun, like slick Hollywood Sorkin esque dialogue and the big corny ending, which has its place. This one is the one that's a little bit more lived in, and it feels a lot more immediate. Nice. 
even though the other one ha- aspired to be about uh, modern problems through uh, a lens of the past, yeah, like some of Spielberg's more recent films, this one is very much up to date. Okay. Uh, when does the mm. next one come out? Friday. So they come out every week? Five films in five weeks. Okay, yeah. I'll have to catch up. Yeah, the, and if, if we're, catch up if the, we're getting a whole one. cycle okay. of these uh, these films that are going to be addressing racial tension over the course of history as part of this gigantic film project from an Academy Award winning filmmaker. Yeah. I think we need to pay attention to this. Oh, we will. Yeah. And again, I wanted to make time for this. It's just I, I had to run around mm. trying to rescue my hard job. I, my, my weekend got ruined. Uh, I will see this and I will see this and the next film in time for the next podcast. Because okay. this sounds amazing. I wanted to see it anyway, and now I feel like I absolutely had to. Because mm-hmm. you know what? You were right about Wolf Walkers. <laughs> I, I thought you'd like it. Did you get a chance to see Run? I did see Run. Okay. So Run is the new film from Anish Chaganti. Uh, Anish Chaganti, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, was the director of a movie that I consider an instant classic. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, there was a thriller that came out called Searching. Starred John Cho uh, as a single father whose teenage daughter goes missing. And the entire movie takes place Uh, on the screen of his computer and his daughter's laptop as he is trying to basically rummage through everything she's ever done, her emails, her search history, Mm. her Facebook friends, trying to find out where she might have been. And over the course of the film, he realizes that not only does he not know where she went, Mm. he doesn't know her at all. She had a whole secret life he didn't know about. Yeah, and it is... That, that This is a format that's been played with a lot, mostly in horror movies, like Unfriended. Uh, it's absolutely riveting. Mm. And I'm mad, still, that Searching wasn't nominated for Best Actor and Best Editing. Yeah. well, John, it deserved both. John Cho is a national treasure. Yeah. His time will come. Mm. Uh, it's a pity that we've... Uh, he's, you know... Constantly puts out just crackerjack work, and he, I think he's going to get his awards due. And he within the decade, he put in the work. Um, I was recently rewatching. I was doing some studying uh, for a Schmodown, and I watched for the first time the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This was the this was the prequel to the live-action Flintstones movie that everyone remembers, starring John Goodman and Rick Moranis. <laughs> right, that everyone remembers. Hey, it was a huge release. It was a gigantic hit at the time. It made money. People yeah. do remember it. They might not remember it fairly, fairly fondly, because frankly, it's not a good film. But it was successful enough that they did a, that they did a prequel about yeah. how Fred and Barney yeah. met Wilma and Betty and fell in love and got married and also, there was an alien named Gazoo, played by Alan Cumming, who mm. granted them wishes and shit. Uh, I'm going to say two things. One, it's better than the Flintstones. <laughs> a that, lot's better that's than the Flintstones. That's a low Flintstones, bar. Yeah. It's a low, low bar. But there's actually some good stuff in it, like some clever jokes, mm. some good production. It, it's, it's a better film. Mm. Uh, it's not a great film. It's not, maybe not even a good film, but it's a better film. And John Cho was in it for a second. He plays a valet who tries to like <laughs> he tries to take Fred's car, uh-huh. and Fred's like, "This guy's stealing my car!" And he like beats him up, and John Cho's like, "Hey!" And I'm like, "That's where John Cho's career was at at the time. He was the valet in the Flintstones of Viva Rock Vegas, and, and look what happened to him." Oh, one more thing I forgot to add: Mark Addy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original king from uh, Game of Thrones season one. Uh, he was also in the Full Monty. Is a better Fred than John Goodman. All right. Yeah, he's a really good friend. All right, I'm done. Also, Stephen Baldwin, about on par with Rick Moranis. 
I will never say that in any other context, only in terms of playing Barney. <laughs> they both play Barney Rubble. They both play Barney Rubble. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Searching is amazing, so I was definitely excited to see what Anish Gandhi would do next. Hmm. His new film is a thriller called Run. It premiered on Hulu. Uh, it stars Sarah Paulson as uh, the mother of a young woman who uh, she's uh, she's being homeschooled, but she's a senior, basically, and she's applying Sick. to colleges. Uh, and uh, she has been living her whole life with a variety of ailments, including mm. uh, she's got uh, uh, she's, asthma, arrhythmia, mm. a skin condition, which I forget the name of, uh, and if she's paralyzed from the waist down. Mm. Um, it's been a which rough we, go of it, but she's actually a really noble, awesome we, person. We see in a prologue that uh, Sarah Paul's in giving birth to an, an incredibly premature child. Yeah. And then uh, they flash on the screen uh, a list of ailments. Without explaining it, just the, the ailment and their definition. Yeah. And, uh, you know, instantly it's a Munchausen by proxy movie. I mean, that's, uh, the, that's, that's <laughs> the concern. And if you're not familiar with the, with, with the term, yeah. Munchausen by proxy is a, is a um, I hesitate to call it a condition, it's, but it's, 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 it's a syndrome. It's, a, it's an, a, an abuse <laughs> pattern. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. Uh, the, the abuser will uh, essentially deliberately make... Their uh, their ward, the person they're looking after mm-hmm. for their victim, ill, uh-huh. uh, poisoning them, injuring them. However, often in mm-hmm. secret, without mm-hmm. them knowing about it, or at least convincing yeah. them that they are yeah. sick, uh, maybe even gaslighting them, mm-hmm. and uh, so they can continue to care for them and be the mm-hmm. hero. Well, and that's very mm-hmm. important is being the hero. And if you and look I, at a lot I, of the real I, life cases of this, it's it's often like a ploy for attention. Yeah. Look and, at how uh, great I am. Look at how great a parent I am. That I, kind of thing. I learned about this from Law and Order. <laughs> yeah. I saw a documentary about this. There's mm-hmm. been turned into uh, there was a recent miniseries about this, I believe, Patricia Arquette. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see that. Uh, this is the Hitchcockian thriller version. Uh, it's a bit upsetting. I will say this, that. What starts off as a story of uh, a, a young girl who begins very subtly to suspect that her mother is lying to her about something. Oh, she's, then, she suspects her in the first scene. It just well, it just really gets gets snapping along. It, gets, no, it works, but like mm. it doesn't start with, I think my mom mm. has been faking all my illnesses. She just knows that my mom has been lying to me about something. Yeah. And then as she begins to investigate one thing, a lot of things start seeming suspicious that didn't seem suspicious before. And the question is... Is this a case of this is the threat? This is what the daughter's afraid of, Munchausen by proxy. Or is there something more to it? And you were going to enter this sort of Shyamalan esque series of twists and turns, and maybe this will not be all there is to it. And then the movie relies a lot on reveals, and I don't think we should talk about anything that happens in like the second half, just so well, we can preserve that much. But well, I will say this this is basically an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Mm. That halfway through turns into a William Castle movie, <laughs> and be- that's a compliment. Yeah, it, it becomes uh, something way schlockier than like the the really terse, quiet, slow moving opening scenes would have you believe. Mm-hmm. I think the opening I, half. Almost, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, I appreciate that. I don't. It, it takes place in the present, mm-hmm. 
but it also feels like it could have take pla- taken place in the 90s. Mm-hmm. The only things that really betray it are, are like smartphones. Just look for the smartphones. True, but, uh, there, but there aren't a lot of those because she's living in a lot of isolation. Yeah, she lives yeah. out in a really remote cabin way out in the middle of Washington State somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's really Alberta. And, uh, yeah. Mom won't let her get a, a smartphone, yeah, even so, though she's asking us. That's yeah, they, they can't they, afford it. They're eating food out of their organic farm. And so when she has to investigate and find general information about stuff, it's really hard for her. She doesn't have a smartphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, her mom is secretly unplugging the internet at night, so she can't sneak out of bed and look things up on the internet. Or is she? Uh, yeah. That's well, the threat. That's the question. Well, I mean, it's it's made really obvious. Uh, and, well, I think, yeah, and but there's I think a, part, but there's of, it is, a, part of it is wondering just mm. like, again, part of the movie is wondering mm. just how much of this is exactly what mm. we suspect it is or whether it's something more, there's mm. more to it than that. So I don't want to uh, like... I, I will... I like the uh, the scene where uh, she has to investigate by using a corded telephone and calling four one one, which is what we used to do. So give me some a, nice, nice flashbacks thing. to the nineties. Um, it's it's just really slickly put together. Yeah, it's really exciting to watch. There's no surprises. I wish whatsoever. I wish it was a little bit more uh, shocking. I wish there were yeah, a few the, more twists like, and turns. It's tension for, as a style rather than tension as a feeling you're necessarily having. But that's not necessarily a problem. I'm reminded mm. of um, there's a movie this reminded me of. It's not exactly the same, but Alfred Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt, mm. uh, which is an incredible movie. It's actually one of Hitchcock's favorite of his own films, and it's easy to see why. It stars Teresa Wright as a teenage girl who has a favorite uncle played by Joseph Cotton. Who's visiting. Mm. He goes about the world and he comes back with, you know, presents and great stories. And she just thinks he's the best. And then she begins to suspect that because he gave her a present and because it has like something engraved on it, that he might be a serial killer who is stealing from (laughs) women that he marries. And that's another one where, again, a lot of suspense comes from being ahead of where the characters are. Mm. Because otherwise it's surprise. That's the difference between suspense and surprise. Mm. Uh, suspense is, I think this is where we're going. And the trick is to get there in an unexpected way. That's what keeps it interesting. Yeah. Uh, surprise is, oh, I had no idea he was dead the whole time. That's a surprise. Uh-huh. That's not suspense. You weren't like wondering if he was dead the whole time, or at least you weren't supposed to be. Um, so, And this is a movie that is about suspense. This is a movie where the audience is ahead of her, and that's part of the thrill. Will mm-hmm. she be able to figure it out using the very limited tools at her disposal? Yeah. Uh, not just because she is uh, disabled and has difficulty doing things like getting out of the house. Your, your bedroom is at the top of the stairs, and mm-hmm. all mom has to do is uh, turn off the, uh, the like elevator. The, yeah. There's an elevator to help her wheelchair get down the stairs. All She, has, she does that, and all of a sudden that becomes a much more difficult thing to do when time is of the essence and it's a suspenseful situation. Uh, so being ahead of her is not the problem for me. Mm. For, for me, I think the things that hold this movie back, uh, this is such a tightly wound film. It's very, uh, uh, everything feels very planned. Mm. Everything, uh, from, by, from the filmmaker anyway. Um, that when there are plot holes, they stick out real bad. <laughs> and there's a couple of things in this movie, and without going into detail, clearly have only happened so that later in the film, 
something can be easily visualized mm-hmm. that would be difficult to explain. Yeah. So like, oh, I saw this thing. Why is that there? <laughs> that is there so that eventually someone could see that. There is no reason to keep that there. It's a weird thing mm-hmm. to keep on you. That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that's frustrating. The other thing I will say is that I actually really loved the whole climax, uh, you know, how everything played out, like in a slightly unexpected way. I didn't know exactly how it was going to end up. Okay. I wasn't a huge fan of the denouement. I think, uh, it ends it was, bit, I think it ends a bit meaner than I was it, hoping it, it was, would. It was the Mr. Sardonicus ending. It that's was like the, ta- the Tales yeah. from the Crypt ending. It was, um, yeah. uh, which it hadn't been pointing to. I think yeah. this is a script that actually warranted less style. I think it, it's, mm. it was a, a, a cheap script that got the a treatment. Mm-hmm. And uh, as such, we're following along with this, with this thing, expecting a, something a little bit more profound, Yeah, especially when you're casting a, a really great actress like Sarah Paulson as the mom. Oh, and who plays the daughter? She's really uh, good. Kira Allen as the actress. Yeah, she's, she's she, really this, great. She carries the movie. Yeah, she, really well. she, yeah. even though this, my wife looked her up. We watched this movie together, and she said, uh, even though it says introducing, she's, this is not her first role. They do uh, that a lot. They do that a lot, yeah. yeah. I, I remember uh, the, the kid who was the lead actor in uh, Muppet Treasure Island, mm-hmm. like he, who played Jim Hawkins. Oh, yeah. It's like he's in the whole movie. He's got a song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, six years later, he was in this other British film called The Page Turner, and it was introducing. Yeah. It's like, you can't introduce him when he's already the star of a Muppet movie that a lot of people saw. Ed Burns did a movie called The Brothers McMullen, and it was mm. this minor, like, indie hit, like, very well acclaimed. Big, made big a lot deal of money. in the 90s. Yeah, yeah it was, it's, a, it's a movie about a bunch of bros who, like, have issues with women, and mm. it's fine. It's it's certainly for, good for a, for a really low-budget indie. Mm. And as a result, he got to make a more expensive film, which is basically the same movie. Uh, <laughs> and it's called She's the One, mm. and there's two noteworthy things about it. One, it actually has a kick-ass Tom Petty soundtrack. Like, Tom Petty did all the uh, music. Yeah, it's yeah. actually a good album. That's cool. But the other thing is there is a, an actress whose name escapes me right now that was in all of the commercials. Like And introducing mm. blank. I should look up her name, actually. I don't want to be rude. Uh, the thing that made that funny is she was in the Brothers McMullen. <laughs> she was just in the hit movie that got this movie made and I thought that was hilarious <laughs> and I'd still am very confused by it once I don't want to look up her name okay <laughs> she deserves credit yeah. uh, let's see here. Well, while you're doing that I'll talk more about run um, I think it was Maxine Bonds yeah. I, I appreciate um, the director's eye for detail uh, the ideas of Maxine Bonds uh, what, what, what was it I think it's Maxine Bonds I'm Maxine like 90, Bonds I'm like 90% okay. sure that's her name but uh, sort of Showing uh, and very naturally uh, the accoutrements of uh, of disabled life. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of special care and attention and detail went into a lot of that. Yeah, uh, and because it could have it could have very easily been an, exploitative. Yeah, 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 and and I you know movies frequently get this stuff wrong. And I feel like this one was able to uh, really zero in on it. Um, but the the danger, though, is that if this is, and without mm, ruining it, mm. if this is about Munchausen by proxy, mm. the question is, is this like, oh, but then she can just be, like, cured, and then it really isn't about that. Mm. And I think they find a good way to have their cake and eat it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like it. I like it a lot. I, I, I like I, it, I had, I had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's... 
it's it's no classic, but it's a, an exciting watch. It's, it's a, a pot. Boiler. It's a thrill. It's yeah. a good pot boiler. It mm. is a. It, this would be a B movie. Uh, that was surprisingly good. Yeah. Or, or again, if you want to compare it to Alfred Hitchcock, he did a lot of these A pictures, these North by Northwests, uh, these uh, mm. uh, you know giant productions. And then between them, he would do something kind of funky and fun and low budget just to try to be creative and interesting, like you know something like uh, Rope or The Trouble with Harry or, or Psycho for that matter. or Psycho yeah. for that matter. Although Psycho obviously was so popular, it ended up feeling like one of his A pictures, but it was mm. supposed to be one of his low budget experimental. Like I'm just going to do this thriller and try to do mm. it in a fun way. This feels like one of those thrillers. It never quite taps into something more profound than what the story is about. Yeah, uh, and that holds it back a little bit. And I feel like there was room to go there, which is a little frustrating. I felt like it could have been a little bit more. Yeah, powerful, yeah. but as a like just a rock solid three star <laughs> thriller with yeah a couple of plot holes and ending I don't love, mm. but even with those, this is a cool thriller and I highly recommend it. It's 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 strong, it's okay. very strong. Uh, okay, we got two more films and I didn't see these. Tell me about Collective. Uh, collective, um, Collective is a Romanian documentary film uh, about. A rather infamous uh, fire that occurred at a club called the Collective Club. Okay, um, which happened in something something two twenty. It happened in the like the late two thousands, and because there was so uh, little government regulation, there weren't a lot of exits to this club, ah. and a lot of people died instantly. And so because it was such a big scandal, the government was replaced by this interim government that they, they describe as an, a government of technocrats mm-hmm. who are meant to come in for exactly one year and fix everything. And then they could put the, the government back into place. Uh, and but uh, over the course of the film, we begin to learn that a lot of the people who survived, they were very badly burned, but they were taken to a hospital where they died of horrible infections. And of all people, a team of uh, reporters who work for a sports magazine managed to get wind of this story and started to investigate that a lot of the uh, uh, antibiotics and a lot of the the medicines that they were using to cure people and also to clean the hospitals were being watered down. They were being diluted to the point where they weren't effective anymore. So they were injecting people with these antibiotics and they were still dying of infections. Yeah. Uh, and they look even deeper and they find this huge net of just institutionalized corruption hmm. where a lot of the people who are managers of the hospitals were either uh, like had political leanings or they were had ties to organized crime. And there was this big like pharma underground where a lot of people were trading these medicines back and forth and making a huge fortune off of these things. Meanwhile, there's film of people in hospitals with like literally with maggots growing in their wounds. Oh. It's it's really kind of horrifying. Uh, I got the same feeling watching this movie as I did watching Totally Under Control, mm. the Alex Gibney film about uh, the, the coronavirus the, pandemic. The, yeah, the coronavirus, and specifically about the Trump administration's complete mishandling of it. Uh, because it is about how deep and ingrained this web of corruption really is. Mm. And we, the more and more we learn, the more frustrated we get because uh, we get more and more of this sense that 
this is just the way things operate. And even when we can point out that things are wrong, nobody's in a position where they can do anything about it or they're willing to do the right things or they just don't know mm. how to fix this problem. We just kind of have there's let so the, much bureaucracy. Yeah, it's so like there's much, so much red tape and we're yeah. trying to do this one thing. And then along the way, while we're trying to take care of this one thing, uh, somebody in the in like from some right wing media arm tries to change the tem- timber of the conversation. Mm. So now it's about about how this one hospital doesn't do lung transports and people are go- going overseas. That, that was another uh, part of this corruption is mm. you have to go to a Romanian hospital. Uh, you're not allowed if you injure yourself in Romania, you're not allowed to go overseas. You have to go to a Romanian hospital, wow. uh, which is this weird sort of loophole in the European Union, uh, specifically to accommodate for this corruption. Uh it, it's it's told in a really kind of bare style. I'm not gonna say Frederick Wiseman type. Mm. Frederick Wiseman is a famous documentarian known for just sort of locking the camera down. There's no uh, explanations on screen. There's no interviews. There's no talking heads. He just You're a fly on the wall. Exactly. It was the fly on the wall approach to documentary. Uh, and it's he's one of the best documentarians ever. Uh, there's not there's no interviews. Uh, it's just sort of that fly on the wall style. But it's like if it's it's uh, really, really well um paced like it's really quickly paced and really quickly edited it's like almost like a thriller in a lot of scenes where we're learning more and more about these things and people are giving these uh like revealing the truth that they've been involved in this like web of corruption uh good golly is it riveting (laughs) (laughs) so it sounds this is one of the reasons mm -hmm. why i don't always gravitate to Mm -hmm. documentaries and i say this not as a a film critic who will Mm -hmm. watch anything but as someone who just appreciates And we all have things that we like a lot. And we tend to be like, you know, oh, I'll see anything. Oh, but there's a new slasher movie out. I'll see that first. Like that kind of thing. I don't tend to like say to myself, oh, there's a new documentary about how like the medical industry is completely corrupt and people have got like maggots growing in Mm -hmm. them because of, you know, incompetence and bureaucracy. I don't go, oh. Ooh. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't uh, tend to gravitate towards yeah. it, you know. Like so, I, I this well, feels maybe a bit if, more like homework to me. Sometimes, maybe if I can describe it as you know, we were just talking about Run as this really wrenching thriller, and okay. people get hurt in that movie, and people die in that movie. Right? Uh, it's fictional, so there's a bit of a there's a bit of a. But you're still watching of disbelief. You're still watching a story of torture and death. So, right, uh, but I know the actor is fine. <laughs> That's the difference. That's true. Um, but if if you want that just sort of complemented by the fact that it's a true story yeah. and you're watching it actually happen and uh, you can get on board with a really frustrating, infuriating thrill ride, yeah. then you would enjoy a movie like this. Uh, listen, you sit me down in front of a documentary and mm. I tend to get riveted, especially yeah. if it's any good, obviously. But like, it's just not like the sort of thing where I'm like, ooh, maggots, you say. Dibs. Dibs, dibs. Like, I don't I don't tend to do that. But this this does obviously please, sound great. Please don't make that a catchphrase. No, no, that's, that's not a t-shirt. This movie has dibs, dibs. Thank, oh God, no! Thank, that's no. I'm not thank you, that. Entertainment Tonight. I'm not uh, doing that. <laughs> that's not. A th- that's not a thing. Yeah. Okay, I apologize for bringing it up. Please do not turn that into a thing. 
Hmm. Wink. No, please don't do it. Please don't do it. I'm serious. Okay, moving on. Tell me about The Last Vermeer. Uh, The Last Vermeer, this is a film from Sony. This is a big, I think this uh, was meant to have a theatrical release. Mm -hmm. I think it does have a limited theatrical release. And uh, it is like a big prestige picture. It's the second film I've seen this year about actor, uh, Danish actor Kleis Bang, investigating malfeasance in the high art world. Didn't you do like two or three Kleis Bang movies like, a week this the, summer? Uh, like yeah, there was one week we had two or three films. We had two films like one week right after the other. And wasn't so this also is, like in Dracula around that time so too? Yeah, th- so it's this, a big year for him. It's a big year for Kleis Bang. It was, this is the year he ascends. And... Uh, <laughs> The last one was called The Burnt Orange Heresy. And didn't you hate it? Uh, it, it, it wasn't good. It wasn't okay. good. It was, it was like a lot of navel-gazing navel and heavy conversations that were actually really churlish and meaningless. This one is a little bit more uh, straightforward. It's a, a World War II picture, or rather it's a post-World War II picture. Uh, Clias Bang plays a, a Dutch officer who defected to the Canadian army and Mm. after the fall of the Reich uh, is now tasked with rounding up the art that the Nazis stole during the war. Uh, A lot of very valuable paintings, a lot of masterworks were stolen, just outright stolen and spirited away by the Nazis. Um, There's There's a movie called The Monuments Men about about this very uh, phenomenon, uh, but that was about American soldiers. This is about a Canadian soldier. That's actually, I love the idea of that movie. I wish it was a better film. Yeah, it's it's not that great. It's It's got a great great cast. The cast is amazing, and the premise is in World War II, one of the things that America's government and military cared enough about Mm. was we need to make sure that while we're destroying everything and while the Nazis are stealing everything, that we take care to preserve priceless works of art and priceless Mm. architecture and things. Mm. And so they actually embedded, like professors and art critics and stuff in with mm. the soldiers just to try to make sure we preserve the cultural mm. history of Europe as it was being ravaged. <laughs> I love that, 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 that was important and yeah. it was, it is important. Yeah. So it's, God, I wish it was a better movie though. It's, <laughs> it's fine, yeah, but, but it's not great. But, uh, in, in the course of doing this, he, uh, rounds up, uh, um, real life, uh, uh, Dutch folk hero Han mm. uh, van Meergren, mm. played by Guy Pierce, and Guy Pierce has this wonderful fruity hairdo and a little <laughs> weird-looking uh, uh, facial hair, and he's really camping it up. He's he having loves a one- playing dress up. Yeah, he's he's having he's having a wonderful time I, in this movie. I, I've never seen and, Guy uh, Pierce like less happy than when he's just playing like Guy Pierce. But when you put him in like some weird outfit or yeah. whatever like that, he always seems like he's having way more fun. <laughs> he knows which roles to pick. Yeah. Um, but uh, as soon as they uh, they find this guy and they apprehend him uh, for maybe trading paintings with the Nazis, uh, who should show up but August Deal, the wonderful August Deal, mm. uh, as um, as the German cop who says we need to apprehend this guy right away, and we need to like take him away. So that uh, Clias Bang freaks out, uh, takes him like steals him from prison, uh, squirrels him away in an attic, and very very slowly we begin to learn his story. This is maybe the first 45 minutes of the movie before the movie starts. It takes a while to get going. So that is not even the plot of the movie. No, the plot of the movie is uh, the reason Han von Mirgren is considered a folk hero is because he is a master forger. And he knew that Goebbels wanted to was like in this pissing contest with Hitler and the other (laughs) high Nazi command over who could have the most expensive painting. Oh, my God. Fuck those guys. Seriously. That he was willing to overpay for like Vermeers and stuff. And all uh, those atrocities they were doing and they were doing that. Yeah. Yeah. 
oh, I hate them so much. Yeah, was, I mean, I hated them before, obviously, but like, ah, oh, just every single new death, thing you learn about those death, fuckers. Death and power for power's sake. That's oh, all what it's about. Horrible uh, human beings. Okay. Uh, but uh, Han von Meergren knew this, so he would fake Vermeers, and he knew exactly how to do it right, how to age mm. the paint, how to find the right kind of canvas, et cetera, et cetera. Even make paints look like that they were look like they were hundreds of years old by mixing. There's a real plastics. art to art forgery. Yeah. It really is it's so weird. Uh, to the point where uh, he, he was apprehended for selling paintings to the Nazis and helping to like fund the Nazi effort. When in fact he was celebrated as a folk hero because in fact he and he knew he was doing this. He was deliberately swindling the fascists. Yeah, and uh, again, fuck those guys. And yeah, and. Just like Mangrove, it's a big trial picture after a while. And, okay. and he's taken to court and he gets to be cross-examined about his role in all of this. And he has a few great, like, one-liners. It's like, uh, d- do you think what you did was wrong? What, swindling fascists? Absolutely not. I'll swindle a fascist any day. <laughs> and I, I also love stories of art forgery. because They're always interesting. Because if, if experts and critics can't tell the difference... Mm-hmm. Then what? Why do we value authenticity? Yeah. What What point does it serve? There's a great mm. movie directed by Orson Welles about this called mm. F for Fake. Yeah, yeah. Great movie where he, there was a documentary about a real life art forger, uh, and there was a reporter who was basically reporting on this fascinating guy's life who claims to have like paintings in the style of people like Ernest Hemingway or Vermeer. I think actually might even mm. be one of them. Uh, and and they're in. Museums everywhere, mm. and they've been authenticated by yeah. experts. And he argues, "Well, what good are the experts? And what? And why is my art not nearly as appreciated mm. as all these others? Apparently, I'm just as good." And then it turned out that the reporter who was reporting on him then tried to forge an autobiography of Howard Hughes. Mm. And they, they even made a fictional movie about that called The Hoax with yeah. Richard Gere, which is, mm, okay. I missed that it's, one. It's not very good. It's I didn't a see lot, that one. It's a lot of Hallstrom movie. F for Fake is one of Orson Welles' late era masterpieces, mm. though. It's a really it's, incredible it, Yeah, F for Fake is amazing. Yeah. Uh, so it, it deals with art forgery, which I like. Uh, Guy Pierce is having a wonderful time camping it up. Uh, and all the trial stuff is really exciting in that movie trial sort of way. So you like this one? So, well, unfortunately, so much of the movie is devoted to all of this extraneous bullshit. Um. Like, we get to know Kleis Bang's personal life and how he's having an affair with Vicky Creeps from Phantom Thread. And I'm amazed she didn't have more of a career boost after that. She's amazing yeah. in that movie. Uh, it, it's coming. It's coming. I hope we'll, so. we'll, we'll see more of Vicky Creeps in, I hope in, so. the, uh, in the future. And yeah, how is his, he's estranged from his wife and how his... Uh, his assistant is now being slow, like this sort of like brutish uh, kind of grunting soldier guy who fought in the wars is now learning to appreciate art for the first time. This needs to be shaved down a lot. It could really, really go through a few more drafts where it's just sort of this nice, clean courtroom thriller or a little bit more about uh, getting into that action a little faster. I think it, it's a a little too full of its own importance as a prestige picture. Right. It's trying to get a little too large a slice of this particular uh, period in history. And it makes a posit at the end, which I think is fictional. Okay. Uh, about sort of the true motivations of Han von Meergren. Oh, okay. Um, well, that's, that's weird. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I don't know if you, mm. I don't think I want you to ruin that for yeah, us. So, but you, yeah. Did it, did it, 
does, does its it, functionality it doesn't feel it like satisfying it's, or it's it... not a betrayal it just feels like very movie artificial like the, mm. it's something they clearly like in the writer's room they were like yeah. what if yeah but it, okay so it turns out this happened but what if we added like some other twists and stuff it's like yeah. okay I'm I'm hearing the writer's room a little bit too much. So it, it doesn't have the kind of glittering prestige that I think it ought to. It's a little lazy. Mm. But that courtroom stuff is sure a lot of fun, and Guy Pierce is really good. Okay, so uh, let's review the movies via the critically acclaimed scale. Mm. Uh, if you're new or if you need a refresher course, uh, the critically acclaimed scale goes from C- minus to C+. Plus. Most movies are a C. A C is average, just like in school. Mm. C- is below average. And that's everything from we just plain don't recommend it to the worst thing ever. C plus is anything that's above average. And that's everything <laughs> from we just plain recommend this to you. We just without reservation, we think you should see it to literally the best movie ever made. C plus on the critically acclaimed scale. Mm-hmm. Whitney, where does the last Vermeer fall? Uh, it's it's a it's a, just a C. Okay. It's just sort of this is this is what C was built for. It's com- that average, not entirely remarkable. Okay. Uh, and, and you have so much left to say. Mm. Uh, collective. Collective. C plus. Okay. I, I really dug collective. I'm okay. Glad, glad I, I wasn't, yeah. didn't think I'd have time to watch it. I'm glad I carved out a, a little chunk. Uh, run. Mm. Uh, I'm going to give it a very low C plus. Okay. It's not, again, it's not an amazing thriller, but it is a thriller I feel like I can confidently recommend mm. where I think even if you're ahead of it, which you probably will be, uh, it is still suspenseful. You don't know how the events are going to take place. I think uh, the cast is very strong. I really like mm. the way it's filmed and edited. Um, I think it's a very well-made pot boiler, but mm. it's not epic or amazing, and it's not going to make my best of the year list. Okay, okay, I, I give it a, a high C, right next, right next to your C plus. Fair enough. Yeah, just yeah. To, to balance out, cover the bit. bases. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, small acts, small uh, C plus, and I'm I'm eager to see where this cycle of films is going. Mm-hmm. If they're all this good, and they all cover the bases in a way that I suspect Steve McQueen is going to, mm. then this might be like one of the more important film projects of the year. Well, I, but, again, but, but, but we have again, to wait. That's we anticipation. Have to wait. We have to, we have to exactly, mute that. We have to exactly. deal with each one as it comes. But yeah. it's a good start. It's a great, great start. That's encouraging. That's for sure. I will check it out and I will catch mm. up next week. Uh, and then lastly, Wolf Walkers, big old C plus. Mm. Whitney knows me like, a, <laughs> like the back of his hand. This movie is incredible. I think uh, uh, this is one of the, this is mm. just a holy shit. Film. You're, like, you're really. very eloquent about it. I was I was flip in dismissing you, but you were very eloquent about I, I really describing love why this why this film is is as good as it is. Uh, I really enjoyed it too. Yeah, I think it's just visually striking. It's very moving, uh, and it's it. It, it feels like Disney done right, and it's which even, I appreciate. And even just as a kids' film, mm. I think this is one of the best werewolf movies. Just period. Just, just one of the best. At least in the top five. One of the best in the top five. One of the best of all werewolf like, films. Right, no. right up there with an American Werewolf mm. in London. Right up there with the Wolfman. Yeah, right up there with Ginger Snaps. There's not an overabundance of great werewolf movies, but no. this is certainly one of. This them. is definitely yeah. upper echelon. Wolf Children is up there as well. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's it's in the conversation. Um, all right, so those are the new release films. 
uh, for the week. And now it is time to embark upon the critically acclaimed streaming club. And God, I hate you. <laughs> this week, I hate that. Oh, God. Oh, God. So, we thought Wild Wild West was bad. So here's what happened. Here's what happened. So you, you keep choosing bad movies. Okay. The critically acclaimed streaming club is something that Whitney and I came up with in order to uh, sort of, if we're watching everything on streaming anyway, let's try not to ignore the older stuff on there because that's easy to do. Hmm. And so we decided every week we're going to pick a couple of films each from one streaming service that we, for one reason or another, haven't got to yet. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're classics, maybe they're contemporary, but they're films of note or of interest uh, that we've been meaning to see and never got around to. And then we let our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network vote for them every single week. Last week, we ended up kind of by accident. I really didn't think it was going to be the runaway. Uh, we ended up reviewing Wild Wild West, a truly, genuinely badly made blockbuster from 1999 starring Will Smith and Kevin Klein. Uh, it was an epic bomb at the time, and time has not been kind to it. It's not like, oh, well, in retrospect, it's actually kind of neat. No, it's bad. So yeah, what you, we you, said was... Your, your comment was, it doesn't hold up, and I my counter comment is, it holds up fine. We had it nailed when it came out. That's, it weirds me <laughs> out how people like jumped on me saying yeah. that, because to me, and maybe this is my just my understanding, yeah. when I say it doesn't hold up, I mean to scrutiny. Oh, okay. In general. Hmm. That's the thing. Okay. Sometimes we sometimes we take a break from scrutinizing something, hmm. and now context okay. has changed, or what we know about things have changed, or tastes have changed, okay. and now scrutiny might be kinder to something or, right. or harsher to something. But well, it, here, scrutiny tur- does not does turns not out favor it, Wild Wild West. It turns out it just never held up to scrutiny, no, it and, and it did, still, didn't, didn't gain being able to being able to be held up to scrutiny. Quite bad, and mm-hmm. I think someone even just said like, uh, "What would be worse, watching Wild Wild West or watching the?" music video for Wild Wild Mm. West, the song over and over again for the duration of Wild Wild West. Watching the movie is worse. Yeah. yeah. Easily. Um, So I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick 2B TV, which is a streaming service I'm very, very fond of. They have a lot of weird, wonderful stuff on there. We've already talked about it. Uh, And they have an interesting selection of westerns, many of them classic old stuff, a lot of spaghetti westerns, uh, some of the less well-known but still very fascinating stuff. And uh, as a as a joke, I put Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter on there, and that won pretty pretty handily, <laughs> like, like by a substantial margin. Yeah, and uh, as a result, next week Whitney gets to pick all the films on the poll. <laughs> I even got to choose the streaming service. You does. See, we like, we have we have one poll I'm, in the middle, and we'll talk about I'm, that at the end of the episode. I'm drawing a line in the sand. No, no. Every, after Wild Wild West and Justin James meets Frankenstein, back daughter. to back, it's pretty hellish. Yeah. So like so like he we have a no, new poll for this week, but next yeah. week's poll is all Whitney curated. Mm. It's gonna be whatever he wants. I'll yeah. he'll subject me to anything, and it's fine. But uh, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter is one of those hazy films you half remember from your childhood. Or maybe you that, read about it once in a book of bad movies. Yeah, you, you saw it uh, like dubbed in another language on public access TV. It feels like the kind of uh, thing Elvira would have hosted. Yeah, or or, yeah. or something that would have been on Mystery Science Theater. It wasn't, but it could have been. It, it's weird yeah. that it wasn't. This is exactly the kind mm. of movie they looked for. It's like it's bad, but mm. it's bad with a lot of pauses. Yeah, there's a lot of empty space to, to yeah. fill in with your own jokes. I, I, I don't know why. Maybe they wanted too much money for it or something. I was, I I was not in a situation where I could drink, but I wanted to. <laughs> 
I don't encourage that behavior, by the no. way. And in fact, I, I don't I don't try. I don't ever drink when I'm watching a film and get a review. Uh, One but, of my rules as a film critic is sometimes mm. they like invite you to come see the movie and there'll be like a small reception beforehand. Mm. And I'm like, I never trust any movie that tries to get you drunk before you see it. Yeah. Although um, I'll say this. I did have the cocktail before Cats. I don't blame you for that. Uh, because A, because I was going to need it. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I had very little faith in the movie. And it was also a Cats-themed cocktail. What was the theme? What was the drink? It was just some shitty pineapple juice thing. Wow, was that uh, ca- but what was that cat theme? It, it's, they gave it a cat name. It was like the catnip or something. And uh, they put a, a little... A li- here's the gross part. They put a sheet of fondant over the top of the, <laughs> the cocktail like it filled the glass uh-huh. with the film's logo printed on the fondant. Oh my god, that's hilarious. So you eat the fondant, you drink the cocktail, you feel a little sick, and you're ready to go for cats. I think the only film I've ever seen, that there's two films, there's two mm. films I've ever seen mm. where they, they offered booze uh-huh. to the press. And weirdly enough, the, 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 uh, there were two films that were ended up being good, rather. Mm. One was Midsommar. Okay. Where there was some Midsommar themed cocktail and I was like, pass, thanks. Yeah. Um, and the other one was Mad Max Fury Road. And I'm like, I'm curious. Th- that's one of the best movies. <laughs> the cocktail. Ever. Like, no, the- I, why do we think we need that? The cocktail is just water, rare, <laughs> precious water. <laughs> Okay, uh, that would have uh, been hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Oh my god, I wish they had done that. <laughs> Maybe if I drunk it, I would have found out that. Uh, right. That'd be amazing. There was that joke in. Um, uh, we are not talking about Jesse James because we don't want to. Uh, <laughs> there was a joke like that in Rain of Fire, that uh, mm. dragon movie with Christian Bale and Matthew McConaughey. Oh, I remember it well. I want to make sure people who are listening okay. remember it. <laughs> okay. Don't confuse it with like Rain Over Me with Adam Sandler. No, Rain of Fire no. is the dragon movie. It's a post-apocalyptic thriller, but instead of the world being overtaken by zombies or something it's overtaken by dragons who fire, scorch the earth fire breathing dragons it's it's pretty fun it's not yeah. amazing but it's yeah. pretty fun and Christian, McCon- Christian Bale plays the the leader of the underground uh survivor camp yeah. and Matthew McConaughey plays himself he's <laughs> completely overacting like mad he's like the the the, the weird, American yeah. the American like leader of like an anti-dragon force that's mm. like driving around in tanks and mm. helicopters and mm. shit trying to kill dragons for fun and profit and towards the end of the movie when they've got to like fight like the, the leader of the dragons, like the Smaug, when we mm. defeat this, maybe we'll finally stop the dragon apocalypse. Uh, Matthew McConaughey takes out a flask and takes a swig, and um. Christian Bale is like, is like, hey, let me get a hit off of that. <laughs> Christian Bale takes a swig and he's like, this is water. And Matthew McConaughey says, keep it. <laughs> 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 it's a weird joke, but that's kind of what that movie's all about, being weird. Uh, anyway. Uh, Frankenstein. So, uh, so Frankenstein's the, yeah. daughter, who's actually Frankenstein's granddaughter, she says in dialogue that Frankenstein was her grandfather uh-huh. more than once. So it's it's established. It's, it's not some we, kind of weird mistranslation. Well, you don't, you don't want to fuck with the poetic flow of that title. I suppose so. That would be like, you know, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford's granddaughter. Like, you just kind of... <laughs> You just kind of ruined it. Uh, she and her brother, so it's actually Frankenstein's grandchildren, yeah. are are tooling about the country on the run because they keep, well, wouldn't you know it, they keep snatching children and replacing their brains. Yeah. And uh, so they're on the run from the law. They're, they're hiding find, out in the Old West yeah, they found nobody a, gives a and shit. And they find a cabin in the Old West. Yeah. Okay. I'm kind of with you. It's treated Jesse. like it's treated like a castle, by the way. They've mm. got like a castle in the old west, and there are like villagers mm. who are all like terrified of them. And it's just like people keep going to work mm. at that castle, and then they end up getting 
allegedly a strange disease and they're not allowed to come home and then they bury the bodies without telling us and now like they've killed everyone in the village and there's only like one family left and they're Mm. like we should leave and like one person's like no we'll stick around (laughs) like who yeah. Leave! What are you doing? Uh, meanwhile, in in the low budget western on the other side of town, Jesse James is a low budget yeah. horror movie on yeah. this side of town. Jesse James is still alive. He he escaped that assassination, and now he's got a bohunkular dude to do some boxing for him. Basically, he's um, uh, Andy Devane. Is it Andy Devane or Andy, Andy Devine? Andy Devine. Andy Devine. Andy Devine. Character actor. Look him up. You know him. Uh, he's Andy Devine. If Andy Devine was in like. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's body. Yeah. Like, he's clearly, like, the like comic the, this, relief sidekick. This, yeah, this kind of, like... he's gigantic quote, and muscular. Quote, dumb buffoon character. He's, he's a character out of a Russ Meyer film. And you know what? This needed to be a Russ Meyer Boy, film. that would have been a... Uh, oh, my God! That would be the perfect film. <laughs> this, like, this that weird, would be the perfect film. I would pay weird, a yeah, lot of money. I would pay to... I would crowdfund that. Yeah, so... Like, j- Jesse James is now oh a, 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 a really busty woman, and uh, all of the monsters are really busty women, and <laughs> heck, everyone's just a really busty woman. And all um, the men are, like, basically tortured and belittled, and then yeah, they die, and, and it's they, great. And, and this dumb bohunkular guy is, like, being alternately seduced by three different women, and there would have been a, a switchblade fight at some point, even though those, those didn't exist yet. Russ Meyer had one of the most fascinating careers, because, like, he spent a lot of it just making porn. And then, yeah. or, or nudie flicks, mm. and then he started making some surprisingly really good films. Like yeah. he actually has like an interesting like way of telling a story visually and an mm. interesting point of view. And great, then, great dialogue. This wonderful yeah. year for dialogue. And then uh, later in his career, he segued back into porn. But mm. now it was big budget, weird, creepy porn. Yeah, <laughs> like beneath the valley of the ultra vixens. Oh, it's such uh, a so so strange. It's, it's such a strange mm. kind of despicable film. <laughs> but then you get like Super Vixen, which is great. And yeah. It's amazing. And you get uh, Beyond uh, Fast, the Valley of the Dolls, of course. Which is yeah. great. Or Faster Pussycat, yeah. which is one of the great movies. It's what a what a weird fucking career that guy had. <laughs> so but if, he had, if Russ Meyer had, had made tone. this movie. He had yeah. a tone. That, this movie has here's the thing with this movie. This is a movie in which Frankenstein's granddaughter has moved to the Old West and begun performing horrible, necromantic, you know, sci-fi procedures on the townsfolk. Mm. This is a movie in which Jesse James, like, basically faked his own death or whatever and is now tooling around the countryside. And then here's the plot. He teams up with the Wild Bunch to rob a stagecoach. One of the Wild Bunch decides to betray them all, kills everyone except Jesse James, shoots Jesse James's sidekick, and so the only doctor they can get to is Dr. Dr. Frankenstein. (laughs) So the guy turns into a giant monster and Jesse James has to fight him. That is an amazing outline. How is this boring? Because if you, anyone with any zazz would have put some sex in this, would have put some violence in this, would have put some serious melodrama in this or like really play or, it up or just some humor like yeah. some jokes or something in like there there's god if if this was the, uh, if grindhouse was a hit ah uh, because you remember that movie uh, robert Rodriguez and quentin tarantino made where they made like mm. the kind of movies you'd see at a grindhouse mm. cinema I've, but big and large mm. and and gigantic i haven't seen it what's that one yeah i know yeah whitney works for quentin tarantino i've, I've, I'm not, watched, I, I've, I've seen it a hundred times i know, I, I like the movie a lot mm. Uh, but like, if I always bummed me out that that wasn't a hit because I would have loved to have seen that format continue, and we get double features of these big crazy genre films. Mm. If that had succeeded, 
And then like the next Grindhouse featured a film by Robert Rodriguez called Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. We would all be clawing over each other in the theater to see that because that sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, here's, the pitch is great. Here's um, here's what and uh, Grindhouse was part of actually a wave of like these neo Grindhouse movies. It wasn't yeah. even the one that spearheaded. It was just no. part of this movement. Yeah, it was a to, cool movement. to bring back a lot of these old B movie tropes, mostly from the seventies, mm. uh, but other eras as well. Yeah. Um, kind of, kind of do for those kinds of yeah. B movies what Star Wars did for like yeah, old fashioned and, and serials, modernize them, make them hip, uh, make them hip, make them a lot more violent. Mm. Uh, Take a, seriously, a lot of those movies are really quite bad oh, um, oh because they didn't really understand. The music of those old B movies. Mm-hmm. They understood a lot of the elements, but they didn't make those things fun. It's easy to copy the aesthetic. Yeah. It's hard to find the heart and soul of them that made them likable in the exactly. first place. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Hobo with a shotgun uh, but, nailed it. It, it nails the tone, even though the visuals were just like no. way over the edge. I'm fine with them updating it, but I think yeah. they had, that's human, one of the better examples. Human beings are just water balloons filled with goop in that movie. <laughs> like, I remember a guy got like somebody steps on a guy's foot and the foot just explodes. <laughs> uh but I think what a lot of the the makers of these like neo grindhouse movies clearly they're not watching the old movies they just kind of know what they're about by reputation. Too and, many of them feel that way. Yeah. And as such, you lose what a lot of these movies really were, and that's boring as fuck. Yeah, uh, these movies were really slowly paced. They all had zero budget. They're clearly just mm-hmm. shooting out in the desert of Southern California or Mexico, and. Just getting to the end, trying to yeah. fill the time. Here's it's another scene, it. and I feel like that's what's going on with, with this movie. It's uh, it has an interesting premise. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein's granddaughter steals Jesse James' sidekick. Okay, weird idea. Run. Yeah, but when we're not doing the cheap Italian knockoff horror movie that doesn't have any gore in it. We're cutting over to a Roger Corman production of a Western, which is not at all interesting. No, like the basic premise of Jesse James and the Wild Bunch mm. team up for a heist. You got me. They just, but it's boring. They just do a heist. They yeah. need, there's no there's nothing like, interesting about tension it. or interesting relationships. Yeah. yeah, they just sort of plan it and it's it a bunch goes. of really lazy scenes that just take place. A lot of flat, in a static medium shots, shot. Yeah. yeah, well, everyone's just like, well, I guess we're gonna do this heist. Well, I'm Jesse James. Well, I'm the Wild Bunch. Cool. We're gonna keep this going for like what four minutes? Yeah. Okay. You wanna play some pinnacle? Like it's just so boring. <laughs> it's amazing how little can happen in a movie with one of the most amazing. <laughs> <laughs> like sort of bullet points yeah. and that's something you see like you you do you see this in a lot of the MST3K kind of movies where on paper Robot Monster sounds awesome. <laughs> it's the post-apocalypse. Yeah. Wait, years after the post-apocalypse, yeah. and, and humanity is nearly extinct. Usually the pitch is pretty solid. Like even something like really bad, like the giant Gila monster, mm. which is okay. There's a giant Gila monster in the desert. And who is going to stop the giant Gila monster? Uh, basically uh, like the, 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 like the, what do you, what do you call them? Like uh, the, the guys from uh, Greece who had like their cars and they were all souped up in their cars and they like cars. Greasers? Greasers. Hot, hot rodders? Yeah, hot rodders. All right. Basically a bunch of teenagers okay. in souped up cars are going to fight the, a giant Gila monster. Yeah. I'm there. Yeah. That's great. How do you make that dull? And the reason why a lot of these things were dull is budget. They, they a lot have, of its budget. They don't have a lot of time. They don't have a lot. They're they're often like all they, just all they had to through. do was was yeah. come up with an interesting premise. Yeah. 
paint a really awesome poster. Good title. And yeah, and make it for $50 yeah. and they could recoup their losses and make a lot of money real fast. Yeah. They'd, they didn't care about making a good movie. And every once in a while, not often, but every once in a while, a good movie would slip through almost by accident. I've yeah. heard, uh, we talked about this recently, we did our uh, iron list of the best ghost movies ever last mm. month. Uh, you, I, I think only you picked Carnival of Souls, but I, I second it because it's great. It was my number one was Carnival of Souls. And, and, and with, with good cause. But I've heard that movie described as maybe the only truly great classic movie that was great by accident. Because yeah. it was clearly designed to be a low-budget schlock cheapie. Mm. Jesse James meets Frankenstein's Daughter was directed by an interesting person. William Bodine. Hmm. was an incredibly prolific filmmaker who had been making movies since the silent era. Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter came out in 1966. This guy cut his teeth. He'd already made like a hundred movies before This guy guy cut his teeth like working with, and I I know he's gross, but just to think about like how long he's been in the industry, this guy cut his teeth being the assistant director to D.W. Griffith. (laughs) At the end of the silent era and into the early sound era, he was making big movies. Like all over the world. Hmm. Not not a lot of ones you might have heard of, but these were noteworthy productions at the time. And then his career just started to stumble and he started making cheaper and cheaper films until the last 20, 25 years of his career. He was making schlock and he was churning it out. Constantly, And I found a quote from him. It's on his Wikipedia page. That was really interesting. <laughs> Let me see if I can find mm. it. Uh, because, and, and he did like a lot of TV too. Mm. He did like episodes here, here, of the Green Hornet. Here, here's stuff. the quote. He says, these films are going to be made regardless of who directs them. Yeah, that's the one. There's a market for them and the studios are going to continue to make them. I've been doing this long enough. I think I can make them as good or better than anyone else. Yeah, he's, he's. It's very workmanlike attitude. He's, he's, yeah. It's a job. Mm. He's, he's. Doing the best he can with oh, the gosh. few resources I'm, he's got. I'm looking at this gigantic filmography. It's huge. He, he did Bailey Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. That's a, one of the. That's one of the. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call it the best. It's one of the most noteworthy yeah, worst the, movies of all time. It's the, really the same. Bad. The same year as Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. He did Billy Billy the Kid versus Dracula. So this was the follow up. Uh huh. This, this was, was like a yeah. series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a, this is like a whole wave of western horror hybrids. Um. He again, he made a lot of movies and I respect that when I was in film school, one of the questions was because we all wanted to be filmmakers at the time. And most of us found our paths doing something ancillary. A few people left the industry altogether and decided to do something else with their lives. But um, and people always ask, like, what filmmaker do you want to be? What kind of mm. films do you want to make? And people were saying things like, I want to be the next Bergman. Mm. I want to be the next Michael Bay. We didn't talk to that guy very much. <laughs> you know, it's, well, it's hey, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a popular thing to be. He had his own thing. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. That's a joke. Uh, but uh, wh- my answer was, I want to make sci-fi original movies. Mm. I want to churn out schlock and try to make it as fun as I can. Yeah. Because that is a huge part of the industry. People don't talk about very much. And the thing that I wanted to do was work. It, well, I will and, always be working. There's always a market for it. You won't be like, you won't be like David Fincher. Who's like been in the industry directing movies for like 30 years and has only made like eight movies. Like mm-hmm. I didn't want to be that. And eventually I realized that my real love wasn't in directing, but was in like sort of talking about movies and helping the conversation. But that was my thing. I have a lot of respect for Schlockmeisters 
Oh yeah, and yeah. and working filmmakers who just churn them out. Mm. That's a tough gig. It's a gig that gets no respect whatsoever, and it's hard work to make it's, a movie, even a bad one. It's hard work. It requires a lot of resourcefulness. Yeah. You look at you know, the bigger budget movies; they have the budget, and often, maybe not always the time, but often the time mm. to put it together in a really slick sort of way. Yeah, and to really think it out and construct it just perfectly. If you're if somebody gives you a script while you're on the plane to the the set, yeah, because you haven't read it yet, I find that exciting. And you have to when you start landing, you have to start figuring out how to get some of these scenes on camera. That and you need to shoot ten pages you, yeah. tomorrow. And yeah, yeah. That, you start getting really creative. You have to get creative. Yeah. It might not come out well. Yeah. It might just stagger along like the Frankenstein monster that it is. Well, again, you but have, you did it again. You have to shoot so much of the movie. Hmm. And this is true for any low-budget production. It's all a matter of how many pages can you get done today. And, like, some major movies, you get, like, half a page done a day. Hmm. Because you can afford to. You can afford to get it just right. A lot of low-budget movies. I've heard of low-budget movies doing 15, 20 pages a day. Hmm. Like, you just... How do you do that? You don't do a lot of coverage, do you? You do, you do, you do a lot of, like... You know, quick shot. You know, you do an establishing shot. Medium. Close-up. Close-up. At the same time, if you can afford multiple cameras, which is increasingly common, and then we are moving the fuck on. Mm. I know you flubbed a line. We're going to keep it because in don't... real life, people flub lines. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's real. In reality, Tor would have that problem every day. <laughs> so, yeah, there's an, another great that, – that's from Ed Wood. Uh, yeah. I also reminded of the line, Baylor Lugosi's like confiding in one of the crew members. Like, yeah, I've, I've worked for like A directors before. They shoot like two, three, four scenes a day. With Ed in one night, he can knock out 20 or 30. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what low-budget filmmaking is mm. like. And again, you can learn a lot watching a movie like Jesse James meets Frankenstein's mm. Daughter. And listen, the movie the movie sucks. There's no denying it. But when you're watching it... It is, it is quite bad. But when you're watching it, you have... The, the cool thing about this kind of movie is your mind is free to wander. <laughs> and you can correct the movie. And yeah. think of how you would make it more interesting. I, I, I've said this a lot, and, and Whitney seems to agree with me, that there comes a point where watching the best movies ever made stops teaching you as much. All it teaches you is how to recreate those movies and yeah. imitate what somebody else already innovated. And that can be effective. There's a lot of filmmakers whose entire careers mm-hmm. seem a bit imitative. Look at someone like Brian De Palma, who spent the majority of his career uh, uh, sort of Being aping Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah and, and similar thriller filmmakers, but mostly Hitchcock. Um, and he's made some great movies, but it always felt like he was kind of in that shadow. Mm. Uh, if you don't focus entirely on the filmmakers who nailed it and just try to think, here's how they nailed it. Mm. Here's how they solved problems. If you start wrapping your head around, how do I solve problems? One of the best things you can do is to watch not as good movies, mm. even really, really terrible movies like this. So when you watch this movie, you, you start to see, okay, well this scene sucks. How would I film this? Okay. I have the same set in the same location. How would I make this better? How would I improve this screenplay? Mm. What could I do What's, to polish yeah. this? What can I do to make this as good as it could be? And we already talked about this. Our imaginations wandered, and this became like a Grindhouse movie, like from the modern mm. Grindhouse movie uh, failed franchise, although it actually was quite a successful franchise. <laughs> Grindhouse, those movies both split off and were very successful in their own right. Yeah. Then it led to Machete. Then it led to Hobo with a Shotgun. Then it led to Machete 2. Like, 
It's actually a pretty successful, unsuccessful movie if you think about <laughs> it. But regardless, if with that tone, with that kind of sort of jazzy perspective where you make it schlocky, where you make it like Russ Meyer, mm-hmm. this is a good movie. You have to use your imagination to get there. Yeah. And you have to fill in the gaps. Again, that doesn't make it a good movie, but it can be a very interesting movie watching experience if you really love movies and you can kind of see like, oh, here's where the promise was and here's Mm. where the potential was. And you can have fun that way and you can learn a lot about filmmaking once you already know a lot of the basics uh, in terms of like how you can use it as a creative exercise. Um, So on that level, this movie is very effective. It also sucks a lot. So I also, <laughs> uh, so unless you're watching it on that level or unless you want to do an MST3K mm. night by yourself, which is fine. No. Uh, this is not worth watching. It's a very, very bad film. But I was able, I'm glad we were able to have a fun conversation. I think it was a fun conversation. We were able to have a conversation about it. Mm. Uh, and that's what we're here for, isn't it? Sometimes they're not all winners. <laughs> However, next week, uh, well, they're all winners, aren't they? Well, because of uh, these, these two Western dregs that you, William... <laughs> Have put on the poll. Hey, I didn't vote for him. Yeah, but you don't have to put poo on the poll. <laughs> Who can, put poo on my poll? You, you can choose any number of classics you haven't seen. Better movies than you knew these to be. I okay, you I had never, so, okay, okay. Hmm. I suspected Jesse James was bad. <laughs> I didn't know for a fact Wild Wild West was bad. I was genuinely I, hoping. You could have gen- asked me. <laughs> I trusted everyone else's opinion about things. I wouldn't be a critic. I, I need to yeah, see it for so. myself. I was hoping that maybe we would look back on Wild Wild West and it'd be more fun than its reputation Mm -hmm. and hurt. I was wrong about that. I apologize. Mm -hmm. I don't know way to find out, wasn't there? As such, uh, I I selected the streaming service. Yeah. Something that is not known for its schlock. In fact, uh, Ovid.tv... Is spelled O V I D. It's it's sort of like the scrappy younger brother of the Criterion Collection. It's it's a lot of the um, if you remember those movies that you heard about that were playing in a big city in a museum for one day and were eight hours long, mm-hmm. and they got like huge amounts of critical acclaim for like the two critics that managed to go see it in that little tiny window when it when it was playing. This is what Ovid was for. I've uh, never seen a streaming service with so many movies that I have not heard of, mm. nor filmmakers that I have not heard of. <laughs> That's not to say all of them mm. or even the majority per se, but a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, these are this is these are art house movies. These are experimental short films. These are documentaries. Uh, a few you might have heard of. A few filmmakers you might have heard of. But a lot of them is uh, a lot of the series service seems to be trying to give you an opportunity to expand your vocabulary of film outside what we're traditionally yeah, lot, lot given of, access to. A lot of uh, yeah, re- low-budget indies, some some remastered classics, just uh, you deep your deep-cut art house cinema. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and t- to give them a plug, just because I like them so much, uh, Dave White and Alonso Duralde uh, are sponsored by Ovid. Oh, that's So cool. if you want to subscribe to Ovid, uh, I'll, I'll, heck, I'll just give them a plug for the heck of it. Uh, use their podcast uh code um mm. linoleum because uh because that's what i did um okay. use linoleum at checkout and you get a discount of some kind that's cool uh, i'd have to ask them what the exact discount is i think you get like half off for the first three months or something okay well um, whatever that's that's yeah. that's cool and listen uh again we're not sponsored by anyone except our patrons yeah um but uh you know we, there are things that we do like and endorse mm. 
Uh, so apparently you like this one a lot. I have no experience with it other than browsing it to try to come up with some movies mm. uh, for this poll. And uh, because these movies, normally we don't bother telling you all the movies on the poll. Uh-huh. Uh, which is usually tell you the winner. However, because these movies are so not talked about, and because we can only watch one of them next week, I want to give you an opportunity to at least pitch these films. People have an opportunity to check them out. All right. So tell people about... Uh, well, the, uh, we'll end with the one that won. All right. Tell people about Invisible Adversaries. What, uh, what, what attracted you to put that on a poll? This is... Um... <laughs> This is one I had always heard about. I had didn't you know these are I've seen none of these movies. That's you picked the, two and I rule. saw none of them. The rule no, is any movie we put on a poll is one that we personally haven't seen. Sometimes neither yeah. of us have seen it, but it's got to be at least one of us hasn't seen it, or at most mm. hasn't seen it since they were like a little kid and can yeah. barely remember it. Um, but yeah, this this was one uh, I remembered hearing about this weird sort of avant garde sci fi thing mm. uh, from I think it's the I just looked it up 1976. It came out, and uh, yeah, it was about. Paranoia, paranoia, and aliens invading people's bodies, but in that really kind of art house sort of way, which is right up my alley. Sounds it's a bit like of, Liquid Sky. Yeah, it, it had it. It was ringing the Liquid Sky bell, although I don't think it, it doesn't have that sort of wild new wave style. Liquid, Liquid Sky is Sky awesome, does. by the way. Please see Liquid Sky; it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. weird uh, gender fluid drug tripped alien invasion new wave rock and roll nightmare kind of thing. Absolutely, it's, it's pretty, yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. I think it's just on Amazon. Uh, it's, I think it's on Shutter as well, yeah. Um, and then, uh, okay, so that's Invisible Adversaries. Mm-hmm. That didn't win. Uh, what is from What Is Before? Well, um, I'm not so familiar from from What Is Before, uh, but I've heard a lot about the director, Lav Diaz, is a Filipino filmmaker. And Lav Diaz uh, is perhaps most notorious for the lengths of his movies. Uh, I think his shortest film is three hours and 58 minutes long. Uh, he's made movies upwards of nine hours, and he is uh, the exemplar of what they call slow cinema, mm. which is slow cinema. Yeah, that's that kind is, of what it says on the tin. Uh, it's not in any it, rush it, to it, get anywhere. In that it, it's trying to – it's a, a type of cinema that is trying trying to slow you down, mm-hmm. trying to point out to you that uh, you don't need happenstance. You can just sort of – Slow down your heart rate a little bit. The exact Fall, opposite uh, of Michael Bay. Exactly. The d- exact d- don't opposite. like a- anti thrill yourself. Put your body in a yeah. new state. And uh, Lav Diaz made this film. It's like three and a, or five and a half hours long. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the only one of Lav Diaz's films that's on Ovid. So I was mm-hmm. drawn straight to it. It, it, it apparently takes place in 1972 mm-hmm. and uh, tells the story of when the Philippines were placed under martial law by Ferdinand Marcos. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the two I picked, and one of them won. Uh, the first one that didn't win was a 1951 film called Olivia. This is directed by Jacqueline Audrey, and it sounded really interesting. Uh, I think it's a French film, and uh, it's an early uh, uh, queer drama about a girl's boarding school that is torn apart uh, by jealousy and obsession. And like every uh, mm-hmm. girl at the school is basically torn into factions mm-hmm. that uh, hate and yet feel completely codependent on each other. And it sounded really interesting. Uh, and then the one that won, and this is actually, uh, I suspect this got a bit of a boost from a recent podcast that we did uh, with B. Peterson, mm. uh, because this movie was recommended. Uh, the Watermelon Woman, uh, directed by Cheryl Dunyer. Uh This was, uh, it's considered the first feature film directed by a black lesbian. It stars Dunye herself. 
uh, as a video store clerk who was also working on a documentary mm. about a black actor in the 30s who was forced to take on a lot of a, um, uh, what do we talk, stereotypically uh, racially codified roles, yeah. um, roles yeah. in racist productions. Was and this film made in the 90s? Boy, how do you it, bet? It's about a video store clerk. It's about yeah, a, it was made in the 90s. About a, a, yeah, a lesbian video store clerk who's researching a 30s star. That is like yeah. the 90s of 90s. And I'm sorry, that's my jam. Yeah, no, okay? you bet. I, when this I, when this I is actually, actually one I've been meaning to get to for same. years, so I'm glad I, I, I finally kind of have a actually, professional excuse. And I actually promised in that podcast that I would get to this, so I think everyone's just trying to make sure the homework gets done. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful because... That's something I want to see. So uh, we'll be reviewing that uh, next week. But the week after that, mm. just so you know, for the sake, because not only when he chose the streaming service, but my film ended up <laughs> winning, which he wants to see. But, mm. you know, it's not quite what we intended. <laughs> uh, the week after that, we're going to go back to the Criterion channel and every single film <laughs> on that poll will be hand chosen by Whitney Seibold. You can subject me to pretty much anything, I guess. Like it's all anything. If it's on the Criterion yeah. Channel, yeah. As long as you all haven't right. seen it, that's the one rule. You can't have seen it. Okay, sounds good. Uh, so, uh, and that will be next week's poll on the Patreon page. And again, that Patreon is Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, we have a lot of polls on there. Uh, Cancel Too Soon took kind of like a weird hit this month because we had some plans that got screwed up. But it'll be back next month uh, and mm. uh, with a lot of uh, a, a lot of really exciting episodes, I mm. think. Uh, so, But we have polls for that. We have polls every week for the streaming club. Uh, other polls as well just to help decide content that we're going to produce. We have exclusive shows about the 1960s Batman, about every single episode of Star Trek, about every film nominated for Best Picture. That podcast is a little late and we're going to get to that real soon. Uh, we do commentary tracks. We're going to do Dino other day really really soon um we have a lot of stuff over there and we just want to say a very special thank you again to all of our patrons who keep us going every single month and without whom the show wouldn't exist that is absolutely 100 percent true we're incredibly grateful to you thank you for that uh and of course uh, once again at the end of the episode i just want to say thank you again to everyone who in addition to that helped chip in to uh, buy us some tech so that we could continue to do this podcast uh as well as we possibly can and hopefully even better in the future. Uh, so again, I just, I, I cannot believe how generous you all are. So thank you so much. Um, he is, he is positively for I am 100% for Uh, but, uh, if you want to contact us, uh, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, of course you can follow us on Twitter at critic acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibel. You also can write us a letter, uh, letters at critically acclaimed.net is the email address. Uh, you're welcome to ask us questions, recommend movies, uh, tell us we got something wrong. It happens sometimes. Uh, whatever, really. We're open books, and we have a whole podcast dedicated to your letters called We've Got Mail, which is part of this channel. Uh, so thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody who subscribed, even if you can't afford to chip in. Uh, just subscribing, leaving us a review wherever you find us, recommending us to your friends. Anything you do to help the show is really vital to keeping the show alive. So. Mm. Thank you once again. We love you all. We hope you're staying safe. We hope you're staying... Again, it's... it's a, the, the pandemic is seems to be spiking again in a lot of different places. So please be careful mm. out there. Please be safe. Please, you know, wear your masks. Uh, uh, and, um... Well, let's, let's, let's get through this damn thing. <laughs> all right? We're almost Over, at the end of 2020. Let's right. make it. Let's make it out to the other end yeah. somehow. So thank you, everybody, once again. And never forget, everyone's 
a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>